Hi, welcome to Life with Catherine, Episode 2, with Derek Travis. I'm Catherine Booth. Derek is a guy I know from my day job. He was kind enough to share his story about doing the Mongol Rally across 21 countries to support two charities, Canadian Cancer Society and Cool Earth. He talks about Iceland, how beautiful it is, and uh, people fleeing crisis in their home countries, and the Silk Road. You may want to open Google Images and follow along with some of the images Derek talks about, but uh, I've requested a couple pictures from him. Uh, lesson learned <laughs> for a new podcaster, don't book the boardroom next to the kitchen because it's noisy and someone will need the room after you. <laughs> so I learned the hard way. <laughs> I'm so glad that I took time to get to know more about Derek. He's a great guy. Thanks again, Derek, for sitting down with me. Here we go. Okay, welcome to Life with Catherine. This is I'm Catherine Booth, and I'm here with Derek Travis, and he is an architect, and he did a magical, massive journey around uh, called the Mongol Rally, and I'm going to let you talk about your trip, the inspiration for the trip, and the story about your car. Let's start there. I'll give you a little bit of a, a brief rundown of how the rally actually works. So um, we got interested in it because my partner, his brother, did it back in 2012. And so he followed along. So he kind of inspired me to sort of get involved in it too. The, the trip back in 2012 was, I guess, a little bit different. Um, he had less time than us, but when we decided to do it, um, we decided to take an extra couple of weeks, make it a little bit more. So we took a route that took five and a half weeks, and it was 18,400 kilometers um, through 21 countries over the course of, I guess, about five weeks, but it, it, give or take. Um, so what the Mongol Rally is, is a charity rally where the organizers sort of give you a starting point, which is in the UK somewhere. Ours was just outside of London. And then they give you a finish line, which is in Ulan-Ude, Russia, um, like kind of in the center of Siberia. And everybody leaves at the same point, same moment, and then you sort of spread out. And you all take your own route through the world, and then you end up converging on the same place for the, the finish line. Um, so everybody kind of takes a different route, but there's about 250 teams, and you kind of crisscross paths with everybody along the way, and you might meet up for a day and have dinner and talk about stories, and then you just leave again. Um, but I guess this has happened so much over the course of the last about 20 years that a lot of these countries sort of expect the ralliers to come through, and they just it's sort of a yearly sort of meet and greet, I guess. So you get to meet so many people, and they're all excited to meet you and trade stories and give you food and take you in and just hear about life in other places. Yeah, no joke. Um, and with that, we were we were doing the rally for BC Cancer, Cancer Foundation, 
Um, and we were also doing it for a charity called Cool Earth, which is the official charity of the rally. Um, and together, I think we, we raised about, about 6000 or $7,000. I'm going to ask you about Cool Earth after. Okay. Um, so that's basically the rundown of what we did last summer. Um, it's not quite as, it's a, a lot more hectic than I thought it was going to be. It sounds super awesome on, on paper and like looking at all the photos, but when you're in the middle of it, it's hectic. Like it's, you have to navigate everything from kind of corrupt police officers to border crossings that take 12, 14 hours, getting lost, not being able to read traffic signs, highways that are perpetually under construction, you're dealing with potholes in the middle of the road that are the size of your car, <laughs> um, and then you have people and animals on the highways. Um, anything you can imagine that can make your life difficult on a highway, it's, it's there for you. So it, it's... I wouldn't have changed it for the world, and it was an incredible experience, but it's it's no cakewalk. And it took you about a year to plan? Yeah, approximately. Um, it You really only have to worry about getting a car in London, mm -hmm. and then your visas. Everything else you could kind of pay for in a visa, like we weren't really concerned about too much route planning or anything like that. Um, but the car was... If you're going to spend that much time in a car and you're driving those many kilometers, you want to make sure it's a good one, yeah. that it won't break down on you. Um, ours was incredible up until it broke down. <laughs> uh, Halfway through or when did it broke down? 80, 80 kilometers from the home stretch. So it, it, did, it did what it was supposed to do. Um, that's a different story. I'll probably talk to them about that later. Yeah. Um, but it, it was an incredible adventure. Um, so back to your original inspiration for the trip um yeah we just my friend's brother he did it streamlined it for us and sort of gave us the motivation to do it where we were both well we're both working and we're sort of new in our careers so obviously it takes a little bit more effort and focus kind of at that point you know you're trying to learn something new and sort of get your your life going so um it was a hectic couple months trying to get to that point where we were not only allowed to take it off, but confident that when we came back, we wouldn't miss a beat, you know? Yeah. Now, what was day one like? Um, so we flew out of Vancouver and we went to Iceland. We rented a car in Iceland <laughs> like, and drove, incredible. drove around Iceland, which is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. Really? Um, the way that the glaciers hit the ocean and it's just... You... It's incredible. It's an incredible place. It's sort of desolate, but kind of moon-like, because it's all just mossy, covered um, landscapes, which I'm just going to show you. Derek's got some pictures here, so I might get one or two off of them, but I can't show everything. Iceland. So that's, wow. That's Iceland. That's right off the side of the highway. So what the glaciers are contracting so quickly right now mm -hmm. that... It leaves all of the the little rocks and pebbles that it's picked up over the course of millennia, probably, and are redepositing it. So it's, it's showing all these like lunar landscapes almost of 
unimaginable sort of beauty. Wow. Um, and all of it's a lot of volcanic, volcanic stones, so it's all black. And then the older stuff has sort of made it mossy and just beautiful. No One of the most incredible places I've ever seen. 100% go. And because the flights are so cheap right now, out of because um, the Icelandic government is sort of supporting their airlines, which is Iceland Air, and they're a low-budget carrier, but all the flights go through Reykjavik. Uh-huh. So you can just choose a two or three day layover in Iceland and just stay. And just stay. And it's incredible. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, wow. It's it's a beautiful place. Um, so that's where we started. Highly recommend going. Incredible. <laughs> How did you even leave there? <laughs> Continue on. <laughs> we had to. And then we flew into London. Um, when we got to London, we had to get all of our driver's licenses in order, insurance and all that sort of stuff. Um, being from out of the country and not a permanent resident and leaving really quickly, it was a challenge for them to insure us. But um, we paid the premiums, got it all dealt with. And then um, we met everybody at the start line and made some friends and took off. Incredible. Um, that's kind of how it started, and then from there we just drove and drove and drove. Now, what did you see on the journey? Um, what is it like to actually be a visitor in these places? And not only that, but be a visitor and then just kind of be traveling through. Did you spend a few days in each place? How did that work? Um, we had no itinerary. We didn't have anything really planned out to begin with, so we sort of stopped when we needed to stop. We drove hard when we needed to drive hard. Me and you and Matt. Me and Matt, yeah, yeah. correct, yeah. Um, but there wasn't really a, a plan. We kind of had a few ideas of what we wanted to see. We, I guess, we're both pretty into sort of like looking at National Geographic and like understanding the world. Matt's brother is in political science and has worked kind of throughout Central Asia. And um, Matt sort of keeps very close contact with them and just sort of gets a subscription to National Geographic and just looks at all the photos of all these amazing places and just sort of, um, we made notes in our heads of places we wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And then we made uh, we made ourselves drive, even if it was an extra four or five hours, whatever, to go see a lot of these places. Um, I guess the first couple days throughout Western Europe, it was pretty hectic. We just drove basically straight from London to more or less hungry mm-hmm. um, over the course of two days. Didn't stop for very much other than just going on the highway and stopping at gas stations and um, we spent an overnight in Brussels and spent overnight in Prague. Then we did an overnight in Budapest. Um, but then after that we kind of slowed down a bit and got a groove. Got, yeah, you kind of you picked up a groove after a while. The, the first couple of days when you're trying to get your navigation right and how you navigate, mm-hmm. we had a, um, a phone app called map.me, which is basically free GPS no matter where you go. You don't even need a, a reception um, or a carrier. It just works on your GPS on your phone, and that was the most amazing <laughs> tool that we had with us um, because paper maps tend to be out of date. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, this and to have most one that would go through all the places. Exactly. Cover is huge. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I guess 
for the most part, we we had no itinerary, but we had ideas of where we wanted to stop and where we wanted to spend time. Um, but we didn't spend, we didn't take any real breaks until we hit Hungary, Romania. Um, and then from the, there, we kind of pushed, and then we slowed down, and we pushed really hard and slowed down, depending on what there was to see or what there was around us. Um, um, and then Romania and Bulgaria is kind of where Western Europe stops. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that at the same time. No, no. Yeah. It, uh, it's sort of where it feels like it changes. You, you kind of, you have an idea of like Germany and England and France, and it's sort of, it's kind of like here, like everything is, but Romania is kind of where like the more nostalgic or like European kind of place begins. Yeah. You know what I mean? The European, Europe that you kind of see in your head of villages and, um, so we kind of start, we started to slow down and you go through these incredible mountain towns and villages and the road's incredible and you go through castles like castles just exist on the side of the highway and you just kind of like loop around it as if like that was there for hundreds of years and then they built highways and roads around it and it's it's sort of a it makes you kind of think that like life doesn't change that much like the the way that we have computers and phones and stuff like that, that obviously changes, but like the the same like life happens the same everywhere. It's always happened the same. We have to eat, we have to trade, we have to buy things, we have to sleep. And those like the essence of the way we live hasn't changed. And you kinda start to see that in in Eastern Europe where the lifestyle isn't quite as quick and fast as it is. And you kind of can take a moment to sort of look at it and see it for what it is. I'm fascinated by the idea of the people that live there. And, oh, it's just fascinating to me. Just, you know, yeah, they still need all those same basic things. Yeah. And they just, some of them don't have the Western culture part. Yeah. I'm the, starting to, like, it's blowing my mind and learning about it expanding my world. The, uh... One of the most amazing things is when you start hitting Romania is where people are still on like donkey and carts on the on the highway. And it Really? Yeah, it it was sort of one of the only places where you really saw that before Central Asia. But mm-hmm. um, let me just see if I can have find a photo. Um, I don't think I have it in here, but I'll, I'll show I'll show it to you later. Fine. Um, but yeah, that was kind of where the transition point started for us, where we sort of were able to take a moment and just see it and breathe it in. Yeah, take it in. Uh, Pretty and amazing. All the agriculture, all the architecture, even if it's not architecture, if it's literally just a mountain, it's still their architecture. Yeah. Most of it just blowing your mind. Yeah, it it was pretty incredible. Um, the it's the little things. It's like the, a house is basically made like a house no matter where you go, but it's kind of the way they decorate it. Um, so we were going through this this place in Romania, this little one little village, and everything was made out of stainless steel with these giant, 
you know, like those Russian Orthodox churches mm-hmm. with the big onions on the top? Yeah. Like, all of their houses were decorated like that. It was like this one little village in Romania where I guess something happened and they sort of decorated their houses like an Orthodox church. Yeah. And this whole village had hundreds of homes that were decorated like like Orthodox churches. And like a little it's tiny incredible. village. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I guess other like other than that, you being sort of a a tourist, but not really a tourist. You were you're more of just like a, a passing passer through. So you're able to see little snapshots into people's lives and how it functions and problems. And so this might be getting ahead of the story a little bit, but um, everywhere from England onwards. The, the story of refugees is pretty apparent. So when we took a ferry from France to, or sorry, from England to France, Calais to Dover to Calais, Calais, um, but Calais is where all like the uh, the English-speaking migrants from Africa are hanging out because they can't get into the UK in any other way. So there's like thousands of people just sitting at the docks, just in these little shanty villages, um, looking to get into England, but England won't let them in or are taking their time to let them in. But then basically the you can see the entire story of the migrant crisis going on throughout the entire Europe. All the way through Turkey, you were, you were seeing it. Not to the point where I was able to sort of get all that... I might need to take this. Yes, go ahead. Okay, yeah, I can pause. You want to go? All of Hello? We just pause for a second. We're back. Yeah. So you're talking about the migrants. The migrants, yeah. So it's it's probably been happening for a lot longer than what people... It's just kind of generated that news mm-hmm. worthiness right now where people have sort of taken an interest in it. But um, I know it's been going on for a lot longer than that. Well, yeah. But... Um, in, in France, a lot of them are coming in and don't have, they don't have anything but the shirts on their back. So Entire families. Entire, entire families. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, but then there's so many old residual like bunkers and stuff like that from World War II that now, now people are making their houses in the bunkers from World War II on the beaches. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. But it's like those little pieces that you get to experience throughout not only all of Europe, the entire length of your trip, but it's also like you get to you get to kind of be an observer and not have to like you need to connect with what's happening. But I, I don't understand what's happening. I can't understand. But you get these little snapshots into sort of what it's what's happening over there. Um, so you're kind of like a reporter, like, I, I don't know, if you, when you're taking all these photos and trying to find something that's interesting, you kind of feel like a, like, I don't know, like, like a reporter, like you're, you're sort of doing all this research, not only for yourself, but through these images and trying to communicate when you get home to people who have sort of a desire to hear it. So, um, that was another sort of... narrative that we were following is these these migrants and um, so after after Romania we got into Turkey and Turkey right now is taking in a lot of the Syrian Syrian Afghanistan Afghani um, 
tons and tons and tons of refugees and migrants. Um, and we were able to speak with a, a couple of the Syrian refugees that were working. We went to go buy um, Turkish towels, and we went to this one spot that was owned by a Canadian lady, and uh, she has <laughs> Canadians tend to be everywhere. Um, but he, she had employed a couple of Syrian refugees, and uh, we stopped. We stopped for a bit and talked to one of the guys, and his stories were incredible, like the the struggles and the the conflict and how it's really kind of destroyed Syria. And like, I I've never been to Syria, I have no real understanding of Syria, but. Um, it sounded like the most incredible place, and just things got a little bit sideways, mm -hmm. and lots of people are stuck and moving, and there's just nothing left. Um, the one, the guy that we talked to, his his parents owned a textile plant, and the plant got leveled, houses got completely, everything they ever owned, gone. Just got either taken for value, got sold to mm -hmm. black market, whatever. He got left with nothing. He went to the border with the bags in his trunk. He got to the border. The border guard's like, can you please get out of your vehicle and show us what's in the trunk? And the moment that he got out, another border, gu border guy got in, stole his car, and they kicked him over the border without anything but the shirt on his back. And I guess that hundreds of thousands, millions of people have a, have a similar story. Wow. It's so different from here where someone would go, well, I'm going to sue you. They're, that's not that's not even in their vernacular. It's just you have to pick up and go, now what? You're, you're in the middle of a, they're in the middle of a war. Yeah. And I don't, like, I've never, you, you see the World War II things and all these, like, you see the movies and you kind of know kind of what happens, but it's the people on the ground that are affected by it, which are really affected by it. Living it, their yeah. entire lives living in it. And his life will never be the same. Like he, even if he goes back to Syria, they're starting from scratch. They're they've got nothing. It's just absolutely wild. And yeah, the entire drive all the way through Turkey, there's thousands and thousands of people walking on the side of the highway and setting up little shanty towns like all along the way. You see license plates, European license plates of family members that are going to pick up their loved ones at the border of Syria, Turkey. So basically, all there's as you're driving through the middle of nowhere in Turkey, there's all these Mercedeses and BMWs, um, SUVs with German, Dutch license plates, Swedish license plates, and they're just they're going down to pick up their family members. And it's just, oh, it's wild. It's, you kind of want to stop, but like I, I we had, we, first of all, we had no time, yeah. but we also like, where do you start? You know, like it's, it's pretty unreal. Watching families just walk. Yeah. You start by paying attention to it, attention to it, and learning about it and talking about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty wild. Like to actually picture yourself walking. Getting up and walking somewhere. Yeah. You you see, I think you see a lot of these pretty horrible photographs of people dead, washed up on beaches and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And like watching them walk through the middle of Turkey with nothing, it's sort of like I don't know. I found I find 
I find it far easier to connect with that, watching them walk, than it is to show me a photograph of somebody that I don't even much like. I, I think maybe I'm desensitized, but I think most people kind of are. Yeah. I think nowadays, because you're showing those photos quite often, but um, I don't know. It's It kind of like, it at least for me, it put my life into perspective that these little things that you go through that you get all bent out of shape about, like, they definitely don't matter. No. They don't. Like, there's far worse things that are happening to many people mm -hmm. on Earth than these little moments that you get bent out of shape about. Me. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, so, and so, sorry if this isn't sort of all together harmonized in one no, presentation. I think it's uh, mostly my fault because I've not... Had a chance to go through my photos or talk about this before? It's like, supposed to be a conversation. It's not supposed to be scripted yeah. or structured. It's supposed to be what what comes to you, what you want to talk about. Yeah, I think also the the stories that people want to hear about the trip aren't necessarily those stories. <laughs> like when I when I start when we start talking about like crooked cops and like the these the refugee crisis and like seeing like these the pain and like a little bit people tend not to want to hear that about this they want to hear the positives mm -hmm. like and I hundred percent yeah it's it's just I think um I don't know it's it's less you just don't necessarily connect with it you know as much as you do connect with the awesome people you meet along the way and like people want to hear the positives not really the the negatives but it's like not even the negative that I think the like it's happening yeah. it's, I don't think it's a negative I think it's just making sure people are aware that it's happening like, it's and I think reality it is a reality and I think like for us we were able to connect with it in a way that me telling other people you can't really connect with it it's different mm -hmm. and like well, so it's, it's all through the filter of the person hearing it, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was sort of one realization that I came across when I was telling these stories, that it's far... It's These are sort of my... It's our realizations, and we can we can communicate our realizations, but it doesn't mean you're going to connect with it the, way, the same way that I did, or that kind of sort of way. How do you find that the people themselves, I guess if they're wandering, they're not really settling anywhere. Are they? How do they interact with, let's say, the police, the, the society there? The society there, how do they interact with it? Um, are they just quiet and, like, respectful, or are they from what just I, normal human beings who are living? I don't know. I've only... I only in Turkey, we came across a whole bunch of kids that were begging for money, mm -hmm. um, which were the Syrian Syrian kids who came with nothing, or their parents got them into Turkey and sort of they were left to fend for themselves. Um, and then we talked to the one guy in the, the towel store, mm -hmm. but that's basically all the interaction we had, other than just seeing things as we drove on the highway or drove by and sort of pieced the story together based on the internet connections that we had and we checked BBC and stuff like that and in that part of the world that was the major story so you got to kind of piece the story together as much as you could um, but for the most part it seems like 
the Turks have been absolutely amazing at opening their doors and helping as much as you can. And they've they've let in something like two million people are there as refugees, and they're. I, I didn't see any refugee camps, mm-hmm. and like I, they probably wouldn't put that on the side of the highways. But um, I, I saw probably ten thousand people walking, and they were left alone, and they kind of did what they had to do. And I, I, you hear horror stories of like these refugee camps and mm-hmm. all the pro- and like at least they're they're sort of allowed to sort of exist. They might not have land to live on or whatever, but I, from what I saw, they weren't persecuted, they weren't harassed, mm-hmm. they were able to sort of... Just live. Yeah, live and hang out. And I think from my brief interactions with the Syrians that we came across, everybody's looking to go back to Syria. They're waiting for the day they can go back. Yeah. So I, I have a feeling that... Um, It'll probably be a long process before they're able to go back, and there's enough um, peace there that they're able to. But uh, I think everybody's just biding their time before they can make the journey back home. And go back home. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, and there's there's a lot of problems in the Middle East, and we uh, Turkey's safe. We went through Iran, mm-hmm. which is also very safe, but they border onto those conflict nations. And uh, you can definitely feel you can feel it. Like um, I'm going to be interviewing a girl who lives in Turkey. Yeah. Lady girl who lives in Turkey. She's going to be interviewed soon, so I'll find out that snapshot yeah. with that world too. Yeah. Turkey. Turkey is incredible. Turkey yeah. is absolutely one of the most beautiful places um, that I've also ever been to. It's hard to. Everywhere is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like you can find like, but it, Turkey is massive and has so many different like environments and they have a long long history of culture all the way from you can go by greek ruins and roman ruins and pre-greek like i i don't even know like byzantines i can't remember but like really ancient ruins that are just everywhere um very beautiful very beautiful and we were one of my favorite parts is that we were Filling up in gas in this remote little town in Turkey, I can't remember. It might not have been a town, it might have just been a gas station. But we go in and there was five or six Turkish men just sitting there eating dinner and we we pull up and we're trying to get the gas pump to work. It's like and it didn't hit to it let you pump, so you had to like switch it on. Oh. Um so we get there, we're asking to switch it on, and they wouldn't switch it on until we sat down and had lunch with them and <laughs> and pop and we sat there for like 35 minutes you can't communicate like we yeah. don't speak English we don't speak Turkish um but you just sit there and just enjoy <laughs> each other's company and it's just I you find some ways to communicate somehow yeah, yeah. like through burping through like smiling and nodding. yeah social norms like you just sort of it's amazing to be able to communicate on and it happens a lot. I think there's like a if if the host is eating, they, it's uh, they're obligated to bring you in and feed you and give you something to drink. So wow. you just have to sort of roll with the punches and sit down and just sort of figure it out as you go. You know, like what the custom is to do. Awesome. Um, but I don't know. It, there's hundreds of stories of like people just opening up their doors and allowing us to come in and sharing everything they have with us. 
incredible, like for your life, for your humanity, for uh, life experiences. That's huge. Yeah. The uh, I think if I if I took three, four things home from this trip, um, one is that plastic is disgusting. Plastic. I think we're shelters in North America because we have recycling facilities, mm-hmm. but. Um, the same amount, if not more, is used in other parts of the country or other parts of the world, and they don't have the, the same recycling facilities. I never even thought of that. So that just kind of gets caught in the wind, just blows, and through some parts of the desert, you just there's not even an inch of little brush visible. It's just covered in plastic. It's disgusting. It's disgusting stuff. And um, my head hurts. Yeah, it, it definitely is not. We're sheltered from it, but it's very much a problem. I, more than I ever thought it would. I read an article the other day where by 2050 there's going to be more particles of plastic in the ocean than fish. I don't know who knows. Those yeah. studies like kind of is painfully installed. Whatever the study number I, is, it's still a real thing. Yeah, and I kind of I kind of believe it. All that stuff getting blown in the wind just ends up in the ocean, like it goes somewhere. So. Um, that was number one. Number two, I think um, that people are incredible. I think it's, at least for me, like 99.99% of people that I, that you come across, as long as you're positive and friendly, like, they'll be positive and friendly. I think people, like, are inherently nice. Um, but... You just need to, like, have that friendly smile and, like, be approachable. Mm-hmm. And I think that can go a long way. There's always going to be corruption. There's always going to be a bad apple, if you want to call it. But, yeah, on the whole, people are amazing and incredible. I I always say, I love every person I meet. Yeah. I literally love every person I meet. It's because they're so interesting, and they're a combination of all these, like, experiences all around the world. Yeah. The, uh, we would... So basically what we would be doing, once you got through Western Europe, we would be driving from, say, 7 a.m. in the morning until dusk. And you can't drive at night because there's no street signs. and It's it's unsafe to drive. Ah. Um, So you would just kind of pitch your tent on the side of the highway no matter where you were. And we'd wake up in the morning and there would be, like, fruit and food outside of our tent. We'd be driving on the highway. People would be giving us cigarettes (laughs) and fruit and bread and... Just people are incredible, and they'll give you, if you're in need or they think you're in need or just want to extend, like, a a friendship to you, like, I don't know. It still blows my mind how incredible people are. Um, So that was number one. That was number two. (laughs) Uh, Number three, I think, would be that no matter where you are on Earth, life is exactly the same. Like, um... We met so many people along the way that were worried about money and homes and school and where their lives would lead. Um, the same concerns that we have here that like me and my friend Matt has, just life's the same. Um, you would see like parents kissing their kids on the cheek before sending them to school. You would have, we were in the middle of like, the middle of Kazakhstan, way out in the middle of nowhere. And there were all these cars doing burnouts and, like, tricks on the, 
on the on the highway. And then we as we got a bit closer, like all the guys were in tuxedos and drinking beer and vodka. And through like the broken communication that we could have, the guy the kid was like, It's a bachelor party. We're getting married and like you're like, ah, like I've been out there doing burnouts in my car with beers like when I was a bit younger. And like it's exactly the same, like Exactly the same. That's in the middle. That's about as remote as you can get, for the most part. That must have been hilarious. <laughs> oh, it was super funny. <laughs> um, All right, I'm just so, going to pause it for yeah. a second at half hour. Okay, good. Just a fresh start. Yeah, yeah no Because I'm new to this. <laughs> can you tell me about the Silk Road and what it is and the history around it all? Whatever you know, it's, it's okay. I'm not putting you on the yeah. spot. It's not a report. Yeah. <laughs> what is it, and, and um, what is the relevance of it, or so anything similar that you want to talk about? I know I, I know very little about the Silk Road, um, except we drove most. We did, we did end up driving most of it, and it was a trade route between, say, China and Asia, and Europe and the Middle East. Um, from what I understand, it's been around for tens of thousands of years. Um, however, it had its sort of peak times when, I don't even know when its peak time was, but um, it kind of existed all the way until, say, like, the the shipping routes kind of came into effect that streamlined it a bit and was a little bit safer. But um, So what it allowed for is a lot of these Central Asian towns to sort of grow in wealth and, pow- and power. So you get this beautiful architecture, like you get beautiful mosques, um, government houses, you get these huge cities that at one point were like the second and third largest on earth. I can't remember what they were called, but Mary and Merv, which were, they're in Turkmenistan now, but they were sort of part of the Central Asian Persian Empire and like, um, they're basically just trading hubs for for goods. Um and when you drive through them, a lot of them have been sort of destroyed over the course of years because of, um, I don't know if you know much about it, but um, everybody knows Chinggis or Genghis Khan. And when, when he grew in power, he went through and he was relentless at attacking places and destroying them, taking them to the ground. So a lot of the most beautiful towns and places have been destroyed, but there still are quite a few that remain, and there's sort of myths around why they remain and why he spared them. Um, One is that um, sort of one of the more beautiful cultural hubs in all of Central Asia was Bukhara, and Bukhara is these very beautiful minarets and mosques, and what we were told when we got to Bukhara was that... um, Chinggis came through and was going to destroy it. But the, right before he gave the order, uh, a gust of wind came and blew his hat off. So he ended up having to bow to the city, which made him <laughs> preserve it. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the, the only preserved cities in all of Central Asia because of it. And I think there's lots of little stories and myths that, or legends that people say um, about all these little towns, but... For the most part, the Silk Road was extremely wealthy, uh, but most of it is gone or destroyed. And I think another big factor 
both the reason why it sort of is preserved today, what is what little is preserved today, um, and also why people don't go there is because it was part. A lot of those countries were part of the old Soviet Soviet Empire. Um, so the Soviet Union kind of was pretty strict on their borders and where they let tourism happen. So um, a lot of these, this architecture and these cities really haven't been restored and don't really have the tourist infrastructure now. So you get to see them kind of what, more or less how they existed hundreds of years ago. And you get to go to these towns that really don't have many tourists come through other than sort of domestic tourism, mm -hmm. which is incredible. Um, I think now there's a little bit of a change because all these economies that are um, are developing now and trying to integrate tourism more, and they do have they have a ton to offer in these countries. Um, the food's incredible, people are incredible, tons to see both um, environmentally and culturally. Um, yeah, um, I hope that. No, I, I don't know. I don't know too much about the no, Silk Road okay. itself, but you were talking before we were recording, and I was like, "That's so interesting." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the history is so fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I think it's been around for hundreds of years. There's no one Silk Road. There's lots of different Silk Roads, mm -hmm. but there was major centers where all these roads kind of converged. Mm -hmm. And Bukhara is one of them. There was, um, I think, there was a town in Iran that was part of it. I can't remember exactly which one it was, um, but there's. Bukhara, there's Mary and Merv in Turkmenistan. There's Samarkand. Um, and then there's a couple others in, I think there's one in Kazakhstan. But yeah, they were all sort of major trade centers for people passing through. Mm -hmm. So it's not one road, it's a, an interconnection of... Oh, hundreds and hundreds of roads coming from all different countries that were just there. They set up to trade goods. Um, another really amazing thing that you see, in, mostly in Iran, but I guess they had a ruler back in the day that um, set up these things called caravans, sorry. And they're just these old um, fortified hotels that existed. Um... <laughs> for uh, for traders to sort of have get a good night's sleep, but they still are around. Um, if I can get on to sure. Did you want to pause and say hi to him? Oh no. It's oh okay. <laughs> we just had someone wave. <laughs> what are they called? Caravan. Caravan Sarai. Sarai. If I can get onto the internet, right now, <laughs> you might have to. Correct this on that, but that's okay. Um, they're just these beautiful old structures from, I guess, the mid 19th century that um, still are just exist in Iran today, and we would just drive up to them and just go and hang out in them. And they're absolutely the most beautiful structures. Basically, like I guess, um, a lot of these. The architecture down there doesn't rain that much, so it just preserves forever. Oh, of course. And you get to watch it in a state of decay, which is also very beautiful. So those of you who want to Google it, it's C-A-R-A-V-A-N-S-A-R-Y. Oh, A-R-I. <laughs> oh, I guess it's either. 
You'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> but they're absolutely incredible, and there's litters throughout all most of Central Asia and Iran. Um, the most beautiful things, and they're just they're just, just there. Yeah, they're just there. You get to go hang out in them. Um, so those are those were another kind of amazing thing we saw along the way. Um, I guess as 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 you sort of go through. Turkmenistan was interesting. So I don't know if another like little side story is that um, Turkmenistan has sort of a a president with 99% approval for the last 50 years. Like <laughs> I'm sure. It, 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 <laughs> <laughs> but he's built an entire city out of white marble and gold. Um, it's another. It's a very interesting country. If you ever want to look it up. Yeah. Um, Ashgabat. A S H G A B A T. So it's an entire city made out of white marble, and it's basically. <laughs> it really is. Yes, and there's nobody. There's very few people in it. the The asphalt is so fresh and new that it squeaks under your wheels when you make turns. It's just like a parking garage, and that's how everything's pristine. They have thousands of people working to keep it clean. <coughs> um. But it, it's kind of surreal because there's no there's very few people around. And there's so many military guards that won't let you take photos. The Internet's blocked in the country. Um, it's under very strict control by the government. Um, it's kind of Gosh, surreal. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most incredible places. And not, not for, like, cult- mm-hmm. culturally. I don't think mm-hmm. you can connect to it because it, it has been changed so much. But ah, Oh, t- we're going to pause. Teresa's going to grab a picture. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up now. Can we finish with something about you that shaped who you are now, that made you want, like, a, a skill or something that opened your mind to become this person that wants to do these things, that wants to try so I had the idea of environmentalism. You volunteered. You traveled. You had an ability to focus and plan. Like, what is it about you that be, that is you? I don't know. I I don't know. I that's a very difficult question. Um, oh, did you travel a lot as a kid? I think my parents always promoted it. Mm-hmm. My par my my parents had me and my brothers and sisters when they were really young. Mm-hmm. So they never had the opportunity to go and explore and do all these things. So they're very, very supportive of me going out and getting out of my comfort zone and trying new things and um, kind of nudging me. It's not the fact that I need support or help. I just sometimes I need them to just give me a little push, being like, "Go do it. You're going to be okay." And they they believe in me and they're not worried about me, which makes me not worry about me. And I think that is more or less where it comes from. Um, and knowing that they're supportive, and if I get into problems and need a thousand dollars or whatever to fix a car, they'd be there. Mm-hmm. And knowing that there's a li- there's one person that's sort of watching. Um, I've never needed it so far, mm-hmm. but I like I think I've traveled to like forty five, fifty, sixty countries mm-hmm. um, over the course of the last fifteen years. Maybe. And now, if people want to look up the website about the charity, what what is it? Um, BC Cancer Foundation yeah. is 
the one that we were supporting the most. Okay. And then there's also Cooler. Um, I think everybody's pretty familiar with the BC Cancer Foundation. Yes. So um, Cool Earth is another charity. It's based out of the UK. Um, and what they do is they help indigenous tribes and populations. Um, not they, they try to help them sort of manage their land and their surrounding land because right now there's a lot of pressure from um, loggers and people that are pressuring the the environment around them, which these people are working really hard to protect. Um, and it's not about doing things for them, it's about giving them the tool sets for them to manage themselves. So, um, very good charity, uh, they're very transparent, and um, I think it, it was pretty interesting that you can hear about them too. So, um, Those are the two that we were supporting. Um, check them out. Uh, I think it's coolearth.org is their website. Um, and they always need help. So Good. Well, we'll promote it. And thank you, Derek, very much. This is really interesting and exciting. And someone needs the room, so we have to go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. No. And that's the end of Life with Catherine, Episode 2 with Derek Travis. Thanks for listening. As always, I just want to let you know that if you enjoy this podcast and you want to keep it going, please zip on to our website, www.lifewithcatherine.com, and go up in the top right-hand corner and uh, donate a couple bucks towards keeping this going. Thanks. Mm-hmm.